The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. A couple reasons. One was because it was January and it was in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, you may notice I somehow find my way to warm conferences in the middle of winter. That's just called wisdom. And so went down there because it was January and it was in Phoenix. But the, also the other reason I went was because one of my favorite preachers was going to be there, a man named Ligon Duncan. And I heard Ligon preach many times on my MP3 player and even a couple times in huge arenas with thousands and thousands and thousands of people. But at this conference, there was only going to be about 50 to 70 people. And so I thought this is a great opportunity to see him up close and actually get to know him a little bit potentially. And so I went to this conference and, and uh, the conference was several days and he wasn't speaking till the end of the conference. And, and so he wasn't around. He's a busy guy. He, he now runs a seminary and he, uh, he was pastor, writes books, things like that. And so he wasn't there for the first part, which was fine. It was still a great conference. But I remember uh, one night uh, for dinner, I was headed into this large room with lots of tables and there were many people in there. And I really didn't know many people. And so you would get your food and kind of be like junior high where you'd have to find a table and kind of figure out where you want to be. And so, so I saw this one table that was half filled and I thought, I will go, I'll go sit down there. I didn't recognize any people, but I went and I put down my food. And before I started to eat, I turned to the one guy next to me and I said, hi, my name is Dan. And he looked at me and said, hi, my name is Ligon. And I thought, oh. Here he is, Ligon Duncan. This is so exciting. But of course, I didn't do that. I needed to stay composed. But then he looked at my name tag. He's like, oh, yeah, that's right. Dan Jackson from Green Bay, Wisconsin, as if he knew me. And so he's like, did you see the Packers game Sunday night? I, was, I said, I was at the game Sunday night. He's like, that's amazing. And so we started talking. It was this great interaction with one of my heroes in the faith, this man who faithfully preaches the word and the gospel. And it was so good to be with him. And that night I did something that I rarely, if ever, do. I used my napkin. (laughs) My sleeve was not good enough for Ligon Duncan. I used my napkin. And not only did I use my napkin, I didn't use my fingers. Eating the brownie, fingers weren't good enough. I had to use a fork. I had my best table manners because I was with my good pal, Ligon Duncan. Have you ever had that happen where you get around someone that you admire or someone that is famous and and your behavior just changes? I remember one time we went to a hotel and they had Snoopy there. My, My daughter admired the awesomeness of Snoopy, but she was paralyzed with fear and wouldn't go anywhere close to him. Have you ever had someone that, that maybe you sat down with and, and all of a sudden you're the most caring, generous, gregarious person on the face of the earth? Or maybe you sit down with them and you just start babbling over your words because you're overwhelmed with the person that you're sitting with. The Lord came to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh was unimpressed. Last week we looked at the first nine plagues. And we said the purpose of the plagues, there's many purposes, but the main purpose was to answer one single question. The question that Pharaoh asked when Moses first came to him, which is, who is the Lord 
that I should obey him? Who is the Lord that I should do what he tells me to do? Who is the Lord that I should possibly follow him and worship him? Today, we are going to continue to answer that question in the 10th plague, the plague to end all plagues. If you would please turn to Exodus chapter 11. If you're in the Red Bible, it is page 53. If you are in the Children's Bible, it is page 103. Today, again, we're faced with the question, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And we deal with this, as we said last week, on a macro scale. In the sense of of all the competing religions out there, why should we follow the Lord? Why not follow Allah or Buddha or somebody else? Why should we devote our complete allegiance to the Lord? And so we face this question on a macro scale, but we also face it on a micro scale, a very personal scale. In our daily lives, when we are faced with temptation, when we are faced with sin, we are faced with this question, who is the Lord that at this time I should obey him and not the passions of my heart? Who is the Lord that we should obey him and follow him and worship him? And this is the question that he's answering in the plagues and the question that will continue to answer today. So let's read together Exodus chapter 11. We're going to read the whole thing, verses 1 through 10. Exodus 11, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt And every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word today, hungry, thirsty, needy, Remind us again of who you are. 
of your glory, of your majesty, of your love. And may this not just be an intellectual understanding, but may it transform our conduct and may it enliven our joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said last week, we looked at the first nine plagues. And through those plagues, we saw three things about who the Lord is. We saw that the Lord is the God of creation, that the Lord is the God of salvation, and the Lord is the God of vivification, which means bringing people to life. He doesn't just save people from slavery. He saves them onto life as it was intended to be. Now, just one of those realities, if we fully understood or comprehended it, would demand our complete obedience. But God has more to teach us today about who he is. And so that's what we're going to look at as we walk through this warning to the 10th and final plague. The first thing we see today is that the Lord is the God of justice. What is justice? Well, justice is getting what one deserves, right? You do the crime, you pay the time, right? If you do something illegal, you get penalized for it. That's what justice is. And that's what we see in this passage today. Look in verse four with me. It says, so Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle. You know, when I read this passage, maybe you read this like me and you think, this doesn't seem right. This doesn't seem fair. We start to empathize with Pharaoh and we think what it would be like to lose one of our own children. And we question God and we wonder, is what Pharaoh did so bad that the Lord would take away his child? Well, let me remind you of Pharaoh's resume. Exodus starts with the people of Israel multiplying greatly. And the Pharaoh at that time is deeply threatened by the Israelites. And so he starts oppressing them and enslaving them. It gets so bad that he actually gives a command that all of the baby boys are to be thrown into the river to drown. What a nightmare. What a horrific setting. That Pharaoh dies and his son, the next Pharaoh, raises to power. And we have this this understanding, it seems that he's even harsher than his dad. He oppresses the Israelites even more. He takes away the straw, and now they have to go collect straw to make their bricks as well. And when they can't complete the task because it is too much to do, Pharaoh beats them and mistreats them. Pharaoh is a wicked, wicked man. Could you imagine if your children were enslaved by Pharaoh? If your children were put in chains, if your children had their lives taken away from them, were made slaves, were beaten, maybe even raped or killed, what would you do? How would you respond to Pharaoh if you were bigger than him and mightier than him? What would you do? Well, you know what God did? God, who is slow to anger and abounding in love, warned Pharaoh and gave him the opportunity to repent. I don't know if you remember in Exodus chapter 4, it will be on the screen behind me. But the Lord comes to Moses, and this is what we 
what we read. He says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. And then here's the warning. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. God warned Pharaoh, let my boy go or your boy is going to pay the consequences. And God gives Pharaoh chance after chance after chance to repent and to obey the Lord. He doesn't just send one plague or two plagues or three plagues, but over 10 plagues, Pharaoh has the opportunity to obey the Lord and let the firstborn child of God go. And yet he rejects him time after time after time. And then in the 10th plague, there is this fulfillment of the Lord's warning and promise in Exodus 4. The Lord will take Egypt's firstborn son because Egypt took God's firstborn son and refused to let him go. Furthermore, God would kill the firstborn son of Pharaoh because that's what it would take for God's firstborn child, Israel, to be let out of Egypt. The Lord is the God of justice. He fulfills his justice always. Now, if you have read through these plagues, you may say, yes, I understand why why God would punish Pharaoh if Pharaoh was acting out of his own free will. But if you scan down to the end of this chapter, it even says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And if you read through the 10 plagues, what you'll see is is there's these different ways of communicating the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. Sometimes it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. Sometimes it won't tell us who hardened. It will just say his heart was hardened. And then other times it will say the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. What makes it even more interesting is at the end of the eighth plague, when, when Pharaoh's heart is hardened, it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then the Lord said, I hardened Pharaoh's heart, referring to the exact same instance. So what's going on here? Well, John Calvin, I thought, gave a quote that is so helpful in understanding what's going on in this process. And this is what he says. He says, hardness of heart is the sin of man. The hardening of heart is the judgment of God. Let me read that again. Hardness of heart is the sin of man. The hardening of heart is the judgment of God. In other words, Pharaoh, out of his own free will, hardened his heart against God. And as judgment against his hardening of heart, his rebellion against God, God hardened his heart all the more that he might receive the full judgment of his rebellion. Now, what is so interesting is we know that the Lord is not the author of evil. And so how did the Lord harden Pharaoh's heart? Well, he didn't infuse into it wickedness or stubbornness. God doesn't do that. And so how did he make Pharaoh's heart hard? Well, God did something that is absolutely terrifying. He did nothing. He left Pharaoh to his own free will. God simply let Pharaoh be Pharaoh. God gave Pharaoh over to his own unrestrained free will. 
unhindered by the common grace of God. Now we may say, okay, I understand. Pharaoh hardened his own heart and God gave him over to his own free will. And I understand why he might be punished. But what about all the other children of Israel? I'm sorry, of Egypt. Why were they killed? They were innocent, weren't they? No, they certainly weren't. They were complicit in the slavery of the Israelites. They could have like Abraham. I'm sorry, like, yeah, like, sorry, like, who are we talking about? Moses. That's who we're talking about. (laughs) They, like Moses, could have stood up against Pharaoh and said, this is wrong. But they didn't. And if they had, they probably were no longer in Egypt. They, too, were enslaving the Israelites. But not only that, they were also sinners before a holy God. You know, this passage is a reminder to us that none of us, none of us are innocent. You know, we may not command people to throw babies into the Nile River to die, but all of us have seen the wonders of God in creation and yet chased after other idols, other gods, other passions. All of us have seen the beauty of God's work and yet all of us have rebelled against God. All of us, has sinned against him in thought, word, and deed. And it's not even lunchtime yet. Romans 3 talks about this. It says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Nobody is exempt. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then it goes on to tell us what does God's justice demand for those who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin, the justice for sin is death. All of us, because we have sinned against a holy God, deserve death. Israel, I'm sorry, Egypt was experiencing God's justice. Each of us deserve God's justice. Each of us deserve the judgment of God. Each of us deserve eternal death. Now, you might say, wait, 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 wait. That's all very good. But I don't believe in a God of judgment. Well, you know what? God wasn't asking your opinion. God wasn't taking feedback on how he should be God. God wasn't taking a survey saying, let me know, what does it look like to be a good God? If you don't believe in a God of judgment, then you don't believe in a just God. And if you don't believe in a just God, then you certainly do not believe in a loving God. If you don't believe in a God of judgment, then you believe in a God that is a figment of your own imagination. And that is no God at all. The God in the scripture is a God of justice, a God who will not leave sin unpunished but will punish it to its full extent because of his love for justice. And so we see the Lord is the God of justice, both to Pharaoh, to the Egyptians, to the Israelites, and to all of humanity. Now, that is not God's only attribute, thankfully. If that was his only attribute, we would all be in a whole heap of trouble. But the Lord is not only a God of justice, 
the Lord is also the God of mercy. And so if justice is getting what one deserves, mercy is not getting what one deserves. It means not getting the justice that you deserve. Let's look together at verse 7. And remember, verse 7 comes right after God proclaiming the death of the firstborn children of Egypt. The Lord says to Pharaoh in verse 7, But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. I had mentioned prior that Egypt had many gods. They had a God for just about every occasion and every instance in a person's life. And they even had a God for death. And this God's name was Anubis. And Anubis was one of the most frequently represented gods in ancient Egypt. There are records of him 1,200 years prior to the exodus of Israel. And so he was a God that was familiar to everybody. And Anubis, this God of death, had a picture. And you can see it here. It is, it's a dog or a dog's head on a human's body. And so when God comes to Pharaoh and God says to Pharaoh, not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel. The Lord is saying, Anubis has no authority over me. I, the Lord God, am the one who gives life and takes it away from every man, woman, and child. I, the Lord God, who conquered the Egyptian gods of the Nile and the past and the people, am the God who will conquer the God of death. And so this leaves us with the question, why did the Egyptian firstborns die and not the Israelites? Is it because they were such a good people? Well, we know that's not true. Ezekiel tells us that the Lord called them to cast down their idols and to turn to him. And it says, none of them cast away the detestable things from their eyes nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. In addition, they rejected God's messenger, Moses, on several occasions, therefore rejecting the Lord himself. And they were not, so that it's not because they were such a good people. See, they too deserved justice. They too deserved the wages of sin, which is death. They possibly deserved it even more than the Egyptians because they had heard from their ancestors of the Lord God who gave a promise to their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and yet they still rejected him. And so why did the Lord justly kill the eldest child of the Egyptians and not justly kill the eldest child of the Israelites? Well, I think there is a hint here in verse 6. Look with me if you would. In verse 6, after the proclamation or the, the prophecy of the plague to come, it says, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. Egypt, in the midst of unparalleled pain and suffering, would cry out. And in the midst of their suffering, who do you think they cried out to? They cried out to their gods, to their Pharaoh God, to their other gods, for ease, for comfort, for salvation, for deliverance. And their gods were silent. 
There was no answer from their gods, no salvation from their gods, no deliverance from their gods, only death. But do you remember Israel's story? Do you remember Israel was in suffering and pain as they were being tortured in Egypt under the oppression of Pharaoh? We read of it in Exodus 2. It says, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered, meaning took action, on his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Egypt cried out to their gods in the midst of suffering, and there was no answer. But the Israelites, in a moment of clarity, cry out to the Lord God for mercy. And he hears their cries. He remembers his covenant. He is a gracious God. He comes and he delivers his people out of bondage and slavery. You know, we have covered that the Lord is, is the God of justice, but he's also the God of mercy. You see, the same Lord God that brought justice and judgment upon Egypt because of their sin is the same God that brought salvation into deliverance to Israel despite their sin. You see, the difference between Egypt and Israel was not in their goodness. The difference was in who they cried out to in the midst of suffering. Egypt cried out to the gods of this world, and they received justice. Israel cried out to the Lord God, and they received mercy. God's righteousness destroyed Egypt because of its sin, and God's mercy saved Israel despite its sin. You know, it's interesting. I was doing some research this week on presidential pardons. I don't know if you know this, but the president has the authority to pardon people, to pardon criminals, folks that have been convicted. And looking into this, I was amazed at how many people file a petition to be pardoned. I mean, it's thousands of people every year. And in order to uh, issue a, I'm sorry, in order to request a pardon, you have to go through this process the first thing you do is you have to request a pardon. You have to issue a petition requesting the pardon. But then after issuing the request for a pardon, you then have to wait five years, five years to prove yourself to be a responsible, productive, law-abiding citizen. And then after waiting five years and having a clean record, they send you a form and you have to fill it out and you have to list all of your convictions and the specific reasons why you are seeking a pardon. And you have to get character references to show that you are a transformed individual. And then if you are fortunate, it will come across the president's desk and he will issue a pardon. It comes to a very small amount of people who request it. And if you receive that presidential pardon, your rights will be restored, but the offense will remain on your record. Let's contrast this with the Lord's mercy. Although he knows your offenses more than you could remember or write on a piece of paper. You do not need to wait five years 
to prove yourself worthy to be pardoned by the Lord. You wouldn't be able to do it anyways. (laughs) Nor do you need character references. In order to receive the mercy of God, the pardon of God, all you have to do is recognize that you do not deserve it and cry out for mercy. You see, the good news is that the Lord God, who is rich in mercy, issues a pardon to every single person who cries out to him for mercy. He grants it 100% of the time. Isaiah 55, 7 says, Let the wicked turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. The Lord God graciously pardons all who genuinely petition him for mercy. And he not only removes their punishment, he removes their record of wrongs. For all who cry out to the Lord for mercy, God hears our cries. And he removes our record and removes our punishment, not by ignoring it because that would be unjust. He must punish sin. He does not ignore our sin, but he transfers our sin to another. You know, we may be, we may be tempted to think it is so unfair that God would kill Pharaoh's first son. But you see, this is something that God has done himself. He has sent his own first son, his eldest son, his only son, Jesus Christ. And for those who cry out to the Lord for mercy, Jesus takes on your sin, your punishment, your record, and satisfies God's justice on the cross. And he does this 100% of the time for anyone that will cry out to him for mercy. Colossians 2:13 reminds us of this. It says, "Having forgiven us all our sins by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross." You do not want the justice of God. That ends badly. Cry out for the mercy of God, and you will receive it. Finally, the Lord is the God of justice, giving what one deserves. The Lord is a God of mercy, not giving the justice that one deserves through his son, Jesus Christ. Finally, the Lord is the God of grace. I want to walk you slowly through verses 1 through 3 because it is saturated with God's grace. And at a casual reading, we completely miss all the grace that is bound in these three verses. Look with me first in verse 1. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Again, we see that the Lord God is slow to anger. He does not just give Pharaoh one chance, but over the course of 10 plagues gives him the chance to repent and turn to the Lord, as well as with all of Israel. But after nine signs, nine wonders, nine warnings, nine plagues, the Lord determines enough is enough. I'm going to set my child free. And here the Lord promises Israel that he will send one more plague to end all plagues. One more plague that will bring them out of their bondage and out of their slavery. Now what's interesting here in verse 1 is the Hebrew word used here for plague isn't used anywhere else in Exodus. And it has the emphasis of a final knockout blow. 
and look at the certainty of the Lord's victory. He says, one more plague. That's it. One more. And I will bring it upon Pharaoh. He will let you go. He will drive you away completely. The Lord leaves no doubt who he is, that he is the God of all creation. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and all of them will submit to his authority, and he will be victorious over his and our enemies. God's grace continues. Verse 2 starts with an emphatic participle. If you don't know what that is, that's completely okay. I'm not sure I know what that is. But reading through the commentaries, this is very interesting. This emphatic participle where he says, now tell, is only used a few times in the Old Testament by God. And every time it is used, this emphatic participle in the Old Testament, is because God is calling them to something that is beyond belief. For example, one of those occasions of extraordinary graces in Genesis 13, when Abraham, this homeless guy wandering in the wilderness, is in the land of Canaan. And God says, you see all this land, the land flowing with milk and honey? I'm going to give it all to your descendants, all of it. And then in Genesis 15, God takes childless Abraham, who is old, and his barren wife. And he says, look up at the sky. You see all the stars? I, don't yet, I know you don't have any kids now, but that's how numerous your descendants will be. And so whenever God uses this emphatic participle, he is communicating something that is beyond comprehension. And so what is it that he's trying to tell us here? Let's look. He says, speak now. In the hearing of the people that they ask, every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. This is an amazing command of God. This is an unbelievable command of God. For hundreds of years, the Egyptians have had their thumbs on the Israelites. The generation that, that Moses is commanding this to has never known freedom. All they have known is slavery and oppression and fear. And yet the Lord tells Israel to go and plunder the Egyptians. You know, plundering usually happens when one army conquers another. They defeat an army, and so they take all their riches, all their gold, all their jewelry. But here, Israel, a nation of slaves, is told to plunder the strongest and wealthiest country in the world without ever raising a sword. And he does this to remind us that the victory belongs to the Lord, that he is the hero of our story, that he is the one who is triumphant, that he is the one who delivers. And he does it to pour upon us grace upon grace upon grace. Verse 3 continues, and it says, And the Lord gave the people favor. This word can also be translated grace. In the sight of the Egyptians. And so he gave them grace, the Lord gave them grace, causing the Egyptians to show them favor. Verse, it goes on. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. Certainly the consequence of God's signs and plagues. Here we see a glorious gospel truth that all who cry out to the Lord God for mercy, not only will he grant you mercy, but without exception, you will receive grace 
upon grace, upon grace, upon grace. Again, these are riches that we do not deserve, but riches that God pours out upon us in grace. Coming to know the Lord, trusting in the Lord, receiving his riches is a wonderful thing. The riches in Christ are too numerous to count. When we read through the New Testament, we see the riches include God's patience, God's glory, wisdom and knowledge to know God, redemption and forgiveness of sins, strength to fight sin, assurance of salvation, regeneration, faith, adoption, glory. All of those are riches in Christ. Ephesians 2, 7 talks about the coming age where we might receive more grace. And it says that he will show us the immeasurable immeasurable, meaning it can't be measured with a tape measure or with a bank account or with a calculator, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And I think my favorite of all the riches, if I had to choose one, and I don't know if I'm supposed to or not, but in Colossians 1, 27, it says, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Not only does God give us mercy, but he pours out upon us grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Listen, if you are a Christian, other people may have more money than you, but nobody is richer than you. Other people may have nicer cars than you, but nobody is richer than you. Other people might have bigger houses than you, but nobody is richer than you. God has won the victory on our behalf, disarming the rulers and authorities and putting them to open shame, triumphing over them on the cross. God has won the victory on our behalf that we might receive the riches of Christ, grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Who is the Lord that we should obey him? He is a gracious God who has supplied all of our needs in Christ Jesus. Therefore, we need, no, we need not look in any other place but the Lord because all other gods are bankrupt, are silent. But the Lord provides all of our needs through his son, Jesus Christ. Let me end with this. The other day I was tucking one of my kids into bed and this discussion came up. This is before I started working on the sermon where we wanted to talk about justice, mercy, and grace. And so I was trying to explain what justice and mercy and grace were in kids' terminology. And so I said to my son, I said, imagine you stole some candy from the candy jar, okay? This isn't too hard to imagine for him or for me. We both do it. But imagine you stole candy from the candy jar. What would justice demand? What do it mean to get what you deserve? And he said, well, to go to timeout. That's right. And would you deserve that? Yes. Are you sure? Yes, I would deserve timeout. That's right. That's justice. Okay, what, what about mercy? What would, what would mercy be if you stole candy from the candy jar? And he said, well, I, I wouldn't go to timeout. That's right. You wouldn't get what you deserve. You deserve timeout, but you wouldn't get it. Instead, you would get mercy. And I said, what about grace? What would grace be like? And he fumbled with this one a little bit. Wasn't quite sure what to say. And so, ignoring the reality of 
tummy aches and poor nutrition and a limited budget. I said grace would be like daddy buying you candy every day for the rest of your life as much as you want. And he smiled. And he chuckled. And he said, that would be awesome. Grace is awesome, isn't it? All of us deserve God's justice. Cry out for mercy, and you will receive grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Let's pray. Lord, we come to your table confessing our unworthiness of it. We come confessing that we don't deserve mercy. We don't deserve grace. But we're so thankful that you are such a good and loving God that you give it to all who call on you, all who look to Jesus as their Savior. Lord, as we celebrate your supper today, remind us of all the riches we have in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.